This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to The Minefield, the program where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host as we move into, is it week four now? Scott? This is week four. Good of count. the Ramadan series, which we're doing on yeah. neglected practices. Um, we're getting towards the end, uh, which I think will be good news for lots and lots of people. <laughs> but this is going to. This is an interesting one. I, I, I'm looking forward to this one. I don't. I don't quite know how it's going to shake out, but I think when we conceived of this series, this was one of the the first ideas that we had. Yeah, um, for that's sure. True. Yeah. And it is kind of counterintuitive to leave it until last, but I think as the conversation progresses, it also makes a huge amount of sense to me why this is the one that we left till last. Well, do you know what? It actually is um, – how do I say this? It actually has to be now for reasons that I'm not even sure you might be aware of. Mm, go on. Yeah. No, no. You tell us about the subject and then I'll explain. Well, we're doing solitude – Go ahead, Waleed, explain. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, because there are a whole lot of things that, that – there are a whole lot of reasons that this particular topic troubles me. This particular practice troubles me. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, so, so explain first and then we can go from there. Okay. So the reason it's incredibly timely is because obviously we're pegging this to Ramadan even though it's not about Ramadan. Mm. But we're pegging it to that. But there's this – traditional practice within um, the Islamic tradition of in the last 10 days of Ramadan of solitude. Mm, so right. there's... Um, I actually knew that. Oh, did you? Okay. Well, there you yeah. go. Do you know the Arabic term for it? I do not. Uh, okay. It's difficult to say. The term is i'tikaf, which is a practice of um, removing yourself effectively from the world and basically living in the mosque for 10 days and mm. doing nothing other than um, quite formal ritualized worship. So not all of this would be like in the form of congregational worship or anything, but you'd basically, you do all the prayers in the mosque as you normally might, but then uh, you might spend the rest of the time reading through and reciting the Quran or doing various kind of litanies or whatever it might be. And it's like this intense 10 day period. It's not a compulsory thing. Um, I'd say, especially in the modern world, most people don't really have a way of doing it because they've got work obligations or whatever it mm. might be. But they might do some version of it. So they, instead of spending all 10 days there, they might go in there for a bit every night uh, and do it. But the idea is it's it's almost the most austere severance from the world mm. that the month of Ramadan offers you. And so you would go and do this. And, and the Prophet Muhammad would do this every year. Uh, and then in the year of his death, he did it for 20 days instead of instead of 10. So there's a big focus on the last 10 days of Ramadan and this practice. It's not quite the same as solitude, although I think it's very closely mm. connected to it. Um, but it's interesting that – and I don't know if we, – we haven't really done this by design, have we? Or maybe you did. Maybe you were very cunning. But we are in the last 10 days of Ramadan now and we've right. happened upon this particular show. Mm. And it was, in fact, by design, Willie. Well, there you go. Happy to know. Yeah, yeah, you're much, yeah. much better at this than me. You really are. Well, I do. I do try. I most often fall completely flat. <laughs> but, you know, every once in a while the timing works out. Yes. Um, so, look, solitude, I mean, it obviously has a certain religious and theological pedigree. 
Um, there are periods within each of the Abrahamic traditions where solitude is prized and nurtured. Um, solitude also has quite a rich philosophical pedigree. Um, some of the philosophers that I, I guess, care most deeply about and have left their etchings most deeply upon my life uh, elevated solitude to the kind of practice that cultivates the conditions within almost all of the other moral practices are possible. In other words, it, it becomes that necessary form of deliberate severance from all of those forms of compromise and complicity and shallowness and impoverishment of soul that make the other deliberate practices that we've been talking about that sort of compromises them from within. So, so mm. solitude becomes a necessary cultivating ground for the moral life within which these other practices then become possible. I've been and, and, and we're, we're going to come to some of those philosophers. We're going to come to some of the pedigrees soon. But can I just – can I mention some of my trouble here? Sure. And, 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 and look, you know, Waleed, you know me well enough. Uh, I am profoundly, I would say, at the best of times, almost cripplingly introverted. Uh, I mean, I, I love my friends. I adore my family. I could go a week alone without saying a word very, very easily and with probably more joy than I'd like to admit. Um, solitude isn't, isn't a problem for me. I don't find it fearful. Uh, I, I find it incredibly enticing. And in many respects, that's one of the things that scares me about it. So mm. if you think back to each of the neglected practices that we've done so far. So we began with attentiveness, the deliberate cultivated practice of attending to one thing, of giving oneself, not to the multitude of distractions that beckon us, but to that one thing, almost in the mode of a kind of scriptural meditation, uh, um, uh, uh, tarrying with something, with a question that we might have, with an uncertainty that we might have, with a poem we're trying to work out, with a novel or a long read, this, this preparedness to stick with that one thing instead of being beckoned across the different distractions that, that allure us, that ask us to kind of move from aesthetic sugar hit to sugar hit, uh, that allow us to feel hotly but not necessarily deeply. Um, it just struck me as we did attentiveness that that particular practice, almost all of its corruptions, almost all of the things that lead it astray are external to it. We live in a culture that is, I would say, nearly from top to bottom arrayed against the practice of attentiveness. Whereas if mm -hmm. you can get yourself in that place, if you can fasten onto that one thing, if you can allow yourself to stick with something that is excellent and that is worthy of your attention for that period of time, but also it might even not necessarily be a form of art or a novel, it could even be a person simply being completely present in that moment. I can't think of many ways in which that attentiveness can go awry from within, if, if you know what I mean. I mean, you know, no, you, I don't, you and I, I don't both... quite know what you mean. What do you mean? Well, well, uh, it seems to me that each one of these practices, there are threats. With attentiveness, almost all of those threats come from without. Mm -hmm. Whereas... Uh, whereas others, like, for instance, our second practice that we did was not knowing, um, uh, 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 deliberately 
interrogating oneself as to what one ought to know, what one has no right to know, what one is not entitled to know, and also, morally speaking, what one need not know. And you're saying in that a, can go wrong internally because um, of it your can become own a form ego of willful, or your own arrogance or whatever. Yep, or, 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 or it can become a form of willful ignorance. I don't want to know, therefore I need not know something that, that, that uh, you actually should that I really should know okay. or that I really should respond but, to. But I would have thought, I mean, I know we're not doing attentiveness again, but um, yeah. I, I would have thought there are internal barriers to attentiveness as well. There are internal barriers, but I think there are fewer internal corruptions. I guess maybe one corruption would be a kind of obsessiveness with a single piece of work that ends up ends up being accorded almost a religious status for us. No. I, I, I guess that probably is one. I, I know people whose attention to every word that I say when we're in conversation is a bit uncomfortable, but I don't feel, <laughs> do you know what I mean? But I don't feel, I don't feel that they are crushing my soul. By Scott, the way th this was an off-air conversation. To. It's not very good of you to bring it onto the show. <laughs> but, but you see, then we come to fasting, which we did last week. And I think fasting really does have internal corruption. So if fasting becomes a way that the self, the body, one's hunger becomes all-consuming, mm. that, that the perfection of oneself and the cultivation of one's body as an object of worship then becomes the object. You, you could say that, that the fast itself becomes corrupted. For, for me, Walid, solitude, I mean, it is, it is a practice that I think is incredibly important. I think it is, it is vital especially when we think about some of the external threats to it. But I've just been rereading a novel that I, that I love and that I tend to kind of read almost religiously each year. It's Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. I don't know if you've read it, Waleed, but, but it's almost a case study of various characters who long for a form of solitude. And yet, apart from one character named Lily Briscoe, if any of these characters actually got what they were after, it would, it would almost crush them from within. They would be confronted wholly with their own internal inadequacy, with their own impoverishment of spirit. So there's one character. He's, 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 an, he's a mediocre academic named Mr. Ramsey. And he thinks that the thing that is preventing him from being a really, really good or even an era-defining academic is the family around him. And he longs for, and he has fantasies about a form of solitude, but he is an internally impoverished, soul-stunted figure. And if he ever got what he wanted, he would be wholly confronted with his own impoverishment of spirit. But solitude ends up being almost a kind of onanistic fantasy, where, where he indulges in it as a way of overcoming his own inadequacy, mm -hmm. rather than being confronted with the fact that he is simply an inadequate husband and an inadequate father. Uh, and so, so, so it's solitude, a way out. It's a way out. Is, yeah. It is, in fact, a form of escapism. And I guess I, I worry constantly, Waleed, that whereas solitude, especially solitude in an era of crippling loneliness, I think solitude is a discipline that needs to be confronted, that needs to be practiced, that needs to be cultivated. But at the same time, I worry constantly that solitude maybe this is just a self-worry, maybe this is just a self-confession, but solitude can also give itself way too easily over into a form of self-deception where I think that the people who have been given to me as 
belonging to my sphere of responsibility, but also as forms of sharpening and provocation. If I, you know, I can give myself over a little bit too easily to thinking, if I can just be free from them, if I can just have my own inner life to look after, then everything would be so much better. So I think that solitude of all the practices gives itself over to self-deception in a way that I find um, instructive, maybe a little bit provoking. Well, I'm very disappointed to say that I agree with all of that. Um, because, and you know, I think you're right, but what, what we're really observing there is that solitude is, and I would maintain an important practice, but it must be an intermittent one. Mm, interesting. Um, it must be one that only occurs in sort of little bursts. I don't think it can be a total way of life. Now, as I say, would you say so? Sorry, Walid. Would you say bursts of particular intensity, of necessary separation, or do you think, for instance, taking oneself off to the back room of the house, putting a podcast in one's ears, or listening to you know Bach's well-tempered clavier, does that count as solitude, <laughs> or, or or does the does the intermittent solitude does it have to be? intense in order for it to be solitary? That's an interesting question. I hadn't really thought of that. I mean, I, I, I was thinking of this in the context that I described at the start of the show, yeah. of this, this sort of practice of, of etekaf. But, you know, so, if, you know, if we were to look at that, then that's obviously a very intense, deliberate um, practice that is pegged to a particular time of the year, even if it's mm. a lunar calendar, so it moves, it's still part of, you know, it's, it's on the calendar. Mm. Um I think what you're talking about in other forms of solitude, yeah, I think you could broadly class them within solitude, but they seem to me more like respite than solitude. Yeah, exactly. I don't know I if think that's, that's a, exactly right. Is it no, a meaningful exactly right. distinction? Yeah, yeah, it is, I think. Yeah. And I'm not saying you don't need those things, mm. but I guess what the point of solitude is, is that you are shutting yourself off from certain other influences and distractions so that something else may come in, something that otherwise can't come in. Mm. And so we could expand this. uh, I mean, you know, we've started this conversation, obviously because it's pegged to Ramadan in the religious realm, but you don't have to be talking about it in that context. I would say, um, I think we've spoken about this actually in the context of, you know, writing an essay or coming up with some profound piece of insight that the world, you know, will benefit from hearing at some point. Those things always, it seems to me, begin, either begin or are more fully formed via a process of solitude. Mm. Um, I must have told you this story before, but like um, uh, Matt Bellamy, who's the, the lead singer of Muse, have I told you this story? No, no, you haven't. Okay, so he was once asked in, in so Muse is a, a rock band, very sort of you know um, bombastic theatrical um, rock band in the tradition of Queen, I suppose. Um, from I was about to say UK, you like you like bombastic and theatrical. Yeah, yeah, it's it's right in my slot. But he okay, he was asked once um, <laughs> what the best time was for writing a song, and when he found it best, he did his best writing, and he said something really interesting. I don't know if he intended it to be as interesting as he as. as it is, but he said, um, it's when I find myself suddenly alone and I wasn't expecting to be, <laughs> which oh, is wow. very particular, right? But the example that you think, when does that happen? But the example he gave is like when you go to an airport to catch a flight and then the flight's delayed for three hours. Interesting. Or, uh, you know, he, I don't think he said three hours, but you know what I mean. And then suddenly you're stuck in a lounge with nothing to do 
and no real resources. I think he was answering this in before the age of, you know, Wi-Fi in every part of an airport and so on. Mm. Um, and so what does he do? Well, he that's when he generates and germinates his musical ideas because, in a sense, all the things that would distract him from that have been removed. It, I suppose it's not solitude in the sense that he's in an airport and he's surrounded by a, a lot of people. There's probably a lot of action. But airports are also fantastically boring places, aren't they? Mm, that's true. And so you do kind of end up, or at least you can end up, in a solitude in parallel with everyone else's solitude, if you know what I mean. Mm. Um, and that's a very fertile area. So I think, in other words, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that the idea that is in the centre of this is that solitude is something that facilitates growth. Hmm. Um, it facilitates, it, it's fertile in and of itself. If it's a lifestyle that is all you ever are is isolated, then I think that becomes something different. And, and that's where I think that your concerns ho- sort of hove into view mm-hmm. because, you know, it could be a yeah. way of avoiding or something I like don't that. even really mean, say, a, a lifestyle, something that's perpetually practiced. But if you see solitude as a way of escaping from external impediments to, to realizing oneself or to achieving what you really, really want to achieve, it seems to me that, that solitude for the purposes simply of oneself, that's what I meant by a kind of almost onanistic solitude. Mm. Uh, I, I think that's where it becomes really dangerous. Solitude isn't an escape from anything. Mm. Uh, from, sorry, solitude is an escape, but it's not an escape from, from our real needs or our real responsibilities. It must necessarily, and, and here it's, it's kind of interesting, you, you just raised the example of almost a kind of serendipitous solitude. Yeah. But I think, I think that form of serendipitous solitude that can only emerge when practices of solitude have been have been cultivated. In other words, when 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 being alone without certain stimuli. When you know how to do it. When you know how to, how to do it, and that makes me think quite kind of determinedly that for solitude to be solitude, it actually needs to be teleological. Um, it, okay, it needs to yeah. ha- or, it needs to need... have a point. It or... needs to have a point. I mean, like, like, like Ralph Waldo Emerson, he's one of these philosophers that, is, that really thought very deeply. He said, one shuns society in order to find society. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's a good way of framing it. Mm. Or you need to have the muscle so that you can give it purpose Yeah. Uh, yeah in the instant. Well and I think we discovered this, didn't we, all through last year, uh, in Melbourne more than elsewhere, but, but really all over the world, as we entered into lockdown. This was a kind of enforced solitude. It wasn't necessarily a pure solitude because you were with family or or whatever it might be, but we was forced into separation, into isolation. And in that moment, I think we were, or you know, life was calling us to discover a purpose in that solitude, to use it in some kind of way. And we saw that. We saw a lot of people talking about how nice they found it, how they found that they could you know, attend to things within themselves, perhaps within their lives Mm. as a result, that it was almost a quasi-spiritual experience for some people, even if that spirituality took the form of feeling a kind of warmth and solidarity towards everyone else who was going through that. In other words, we we, we were shutting off a lot of those things that seemed to cheapen our existence and we were being directed towards something that was more enriching. Now, we're not able to sustain that for very long, 
And so when you enter into a lockdown that goes on for six months, it becomes a different story at that point, mm. right? And you see people begin to lose patience and so on because we need to go back into the world and we need to go back into our societies and we need to strengthen those social bonds in a direct way rather than in sort of the abstracted way that lockdown would force you to do. But that, you're right. That's right. He, but, but, he, but there also needs to be the hope that when we do re-enter, we re-enter as someone who is a richer person, someone who is better able to contribute to yes. one's life with one's friends. Yes, and is also then aware of the distractions that are there. Exactly. So how well, many people yeah. came out of lockdown nice. with a resolution, you know, I'm going to preserve these bits of it. Mm. And then, of course, it all scattered to the winds once <laughs> you know, right. everything opened again because we're not very well practised in it and hence the term neglected practices. And I suppose yeah. that's where we are. We might have framed that relatively neatly for us. Yeah, I know. That's, I'm, I'm really impressed. We actually covered a surprising amount of ground there. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit shocked. I'm a little bit pleased. So we've got 33 minutes left in the show. What do you want to do? To say absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a no, good thing we have no, a guest. That's right. <laughs> sort us out. Uh, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you may be doing right now, but you can catch the podcast anytime you like on the ABC Listen app, or you can follow The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. You'll find us there. Okay, Scott. We need someone to save us and fill the next 32 minutes and 40 we seconds. We do. And, and in fact, there is so much more to say. Uh, I'm so glad we have our guest to help us out. Brian Trainer is Professor of Philosophy and the Charles S. Casasa Chair of Social Values at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. He's the author of a wonderful new book called Melancholic Joy on Life Worth Living. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks for having me. So, so look, there are so many ways that we could begin approaching this, but here's, here's kind of what I'm thinking. It seems to me that the ability to practice solitude comes out of a felt need. It is nurtured by a particular commitment when one is in the middle of the practice of solitude, and it has a particular end. It has a particular goal. In other words, there is a, a before of solitude, there is a during of solitude, and there is an right. end in the sense of there being a telos of, of solitude. It, it strikes me that for every thinker who has engaged richly or philosophically with solitude, there is a very, very keen sense of the need out of which it emerges. And I think the way that you frame that need, the way that you understand the need, shapes the particular importance and the particular form that we give solitude. So I'm just going to hold it open for you there. If we think of this in terms of before, during, and after, maybe if we begin with the felt need that the practice of solitude comes from, where do you want to take us? Well, I mean, I think I'm intrigued by, I, I realize I'm jumping to the other end of your question here, that the teleological aspect of solitude that you find there, Scott. And if we we look away from the, the teleological, the, the sort of end at which solitude is driving towards your question here, the, the arche or the origin from which it's mm -hmm. coming. You know, what is, what is solitude a response to? And I, I've been influenced by, I think, a lot of the same thinkers you have on this topic, and Thoreau and Emerson, and Wolf and others. I think it's often for these figures a sense that society at large or life without solitude somehow circumscribes and diminishes experience. It's not, it's not for them, I think, that 
that social experience is a bad thing, but that if all we have is the social experience, we're sort of missing a note in the symphony of our lives, so to speak. There's, there's something missing if all we're getting is the social interaction, which is what comes easiest to us, right? Human beings are by nature social animals. And it's all too easy for us to sort of only know ourselves in society. I mean, I, 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 that, that's absolutely right, Brian. But even if you just think about, say, Emerson and Thoreau, right. for, for Emerson, the threat that society posed was the threat of a kind of unthinking conformism where you really don't own your own thoughts, but things change around you and you simply change with them. And he, he saw that certainly as a form of kind of internal impoverishment. So for Emerson, solitude became, it, it was far less about place than it was about independence of spirit. Whereas for Thoreau, he was far more pessimistic about about society. I mean, he described those who live in society at large as being trapped in a state of self-servitude or self-slavery. Right. So I think the, 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 the particular slant that we give the social life and the particular dangers that it presents to us, that either ratchets up the importance and the austerity of solitude, or it makes, you know, as Emerson would have it, sort of independence of spirit or the ability to fully own what one believes. Uh, it kind of makes that, puts that at a bit more of a premium. Right, but, but the difference there, isn't that partly the kind of individual differences we all see with people? So yeah, I've true. got another another question for the two of you in a second, but if we took as a given for the moment, the idea that everyone needs some solitude and everyone needs some society. It's still gonna be the case that there's gonna be a range of different temperaments within that. And some people are going to be more introverted, some people will be more extroverted, some people will find solitude enriching and society, they could find different issues with society, that society is stifling them, that it doesn't let them be there their original selves or that it is is it just is overwhelming them because of the the patterns of their attention and their thought but there's a, a range of figures right? I mean I think we should we should keep our frame for this wider than our friend Henry David Thoreau but it's pretty <laughs> clear you know he was a man of a particular kind of temperament whenever I discuss Thoreau with my students I point out that Th Thoreau I think was a difficult <laughs> person to be friends with. Emerson and Thoreau, their friendship was sort of famously rocky. And, and Thoreau is just the kind of person who seems to have needed and valued society less than many other people. And, and I think there's a range of kind of human temperaments that could still be virtuous in that regard, right? Not mm -hmm. everyone has to be an extrovert or a politician or a social servant in the same way. Yeah. I think. Look, I don't want to dominate this, Waleed. I'm really interested yeah. in, in what you might say, but I, I would just say, just very, very briefly, then I'll shut completely up. I'm not trying to peg everything on Thoreau as if we have to follow the words of Walden right. as gospel. But I think what interests me is that he saw society as posing a threat that was peculiarly egregious. And if we, as Walid and I have discussed many times on this show, see things like, for instance, our culture of perpetual partial attention or of ongoing distraction or of social media as having this remarkably superficializing, imbruding quality, if we see that those as active dangers to the moral life, then it may be that the extent of the danger that we regard them as posing 
that then shapes and influence and in turn cultivates the particular form of solitude that we think we ourselves need to be practicing. That, that, that I guess, was the point that I was kind of inarticulately making. I, I will just jump in and maybe also by way of bringing Walid in to engage him. I mean, I, I think that's right. But let me let me maybe ask a question that may seem like we're directing us away from where you are, Scott, but I think it's going to bring us back to it again. You know, there was this uh, bit in your conversation at the beginning where Walid was saying, and I think he's right about this, that a life all solitude would somehow be a failing of some kind, right? That 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 would be uh, vicious. I wonder what either of you think, if you'd be willing to say the same thing about a life all social. So if someone's life was entirely dedicated to the, the kind of social world and that person never took time, him or herself, to sort of uh, retreat t- temporarily, as Walid was saying, not as a permanent retreat, uh, into solitude, would that also be a life that was somehow fundamentally missing something essential. I'm prepared to say yes to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you, Scott? I, I think I would too. It, yeah, in, in part yeah, sure. because to tie this back to some of your other topics and some of the things you said at the beginning, it, it seems to me like one of the things that solitude facilitates that's sort of necessary kind of for a full human life. And this comes back to Scott's point about solitude kind of teleologically preparing us to return to society in a new way is that solitude, it seems to me, is very closely tied to our ability to pay attention, back to one of your other topics, both, well, I'd say to at least three things, to ourselves, to the world, and here I'm thinking uh, primarily of non-human nature, and, and perhaps to God, back to some things that Walid has brought up, that it's a life without solitude society ends up overwhelming all three of those other things. If it's just society, Um, you can't hear your own voice. So you kind of don't have a good sense of yourself. Certainly the sort of, if I was just going to, I don't mean this to sound too pejorative, but the kind of cacophony of humanity and humans culture has sort of drowned out the natural world in in many ways. And then, um, yeah, I mean, for, for people who who think of themselves as spiritual or religious, there, there's certainly a sense too. I, I mean, I was interested, uh, Walid, in your your comment about this practice during the last 10 days of Ramadan and to what extent the prayers that are going on in the mosque there are are corporate prayers where you're you're praying with other people and to what extent they're kind of an individual thing. And I realize there are differences within Islam too and different people might practice those past last 10 days differently. But Yeah, uh, well, I can answer that just as a sort of matter of fact. It's a mixture, but uh-huh. the, the congregational prayers would be the same as exist really on any other any of the other days in Ramadan. So um, you'll be familiar with the five daily prayers that Muslims do. Mm-hmm. They happen in congregation in the mosque. But then in Ramadan as well, there are these quite lengthy evening prayers called tarawih, which are not compulsory, but they're very, very widely done. And they can be quite lengthy. And often the, the aim is, so you're doing, the, doing it every night. That means you do it about 30 times. And there are a lot of mosques around the world will try to recite in those prayers one-thirtieth of the Quran every night so that you get through the whole of the wow. Quran in the content through the – and that might take, I don't know, to do that would probably take an hour, hour and a half. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's the rest of the night. So in when you're in Atikaf, those things still happen and people come to the mosque and do those things and then leave again. But there are some people who will stay behind and they're sleeping there. Uh, and then a lot of the rest of it is just private. There might be little groups that break out and start talking about things or whatever. But really it's a private devotional sort of practice overwhelmingly. 
Now, um, now that seems to me to be a good model for, I, I mean, certainly I'd like to talk in a minute about extended periods of solitude, you know, uh, and I'll maybe come back to a question about that. But what you're describing here in the last 10 days of Ramadan seems to me like a good model for solitude generally, where it's a sort of mix, as both of you have emphasized, between the social interaction or the, the communal life of the congregation, but then also that there's time separate from that for one's relationship with oneself or with nature or with God or any number of other things. Those are just the three I mentioned. But that if it were all corporate, if it were um, that there'd be something missing. Yes. Yeah. 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 I think. And yes, I think that yeah, that's right. The model that you point to is is probably very effective in that way. You know, as you were talking though about Emerson and Thoreau and the personality mm-hmm. differences between them, and let's let's just for the sake of caricature, cast Thoreau as this sort of um, iconoclastic ascetic who wanted nothing to do with anybody. Um, She's actually pretty close. And Emerson, let's make Emerson this uh, man about town. It strikes me, as I was listening to you describe those differences, it struck me that those differences are becoming less and less relevant Mm. in our world, right? Even the distinction that you've, I think, quite helpfully drawn there in the the kinds of solitude that are on offer, some of which are congregational, some of which are, are private, Outside of something that's, you know, quite controlled, an environment like that, into the wider world, even those distinctions between congregation and isolation seem to be falling apart, largely through technology. So I would guess that both Emerson and Thoreau would find society inescapable now. Yeah. Right. And I would I, guess that their socialization could be done in isolation. <laughs> just as their isolation would be dominated by society because they would constantly have something beeping at them, asking for their attention, sucking them in. And so I feel like what we're creating at the moment is a kind of weird purgatory or something whereby we are never really in solitude and we're never really fully enmeshed in society either. We kind of don't have the full strength version of of either of those things. And so rather than experiencing solitude or isolation as something that is refreshing, renewing, that gives us a sense of purpose, perhaps strengthens our character, whatever it might be, so that we can come back into the world renewed and then do something productive with that. Rather than that, we're just constantly circling this sort of um, tepid compromise. Mm. Look, I, 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 think I think that's, that's I, I think that's probably right, Waleed. I, I think the one thing that that reinforces, though, for me is at this particular moment. I mean, Emerson wasn't exactly urbane. He wasn't exactly a man about town, although he certainly was more sort of socially engaged than Thoreau was. And and again, Emerson placed great, great stock on you know he said that props like like the wilderness or a pond or woods, or a rock. These are all sort of mechanisms. These are techniques in order to facilitate independence of spirit. Independence of spirit is the main thing. That's the, that's the whole game for Emerson. That's the whole point of, of solitude. Whereas what I think you just said is, is both right, and I think it also illustrates the ongoing and renewed pertinence of someone like Thoreau for us, because what it would probably mean for Thoreau wasn't simply to to engage with this kind of tepid compromise is not so much the physical distanciation from society, 
But Thoreau also had this really interesting and I think well-developed critique of contributing one's voice or adding one's voice in a kind of passive or limp consent to an ongoing condition of injustice or mutual imbrutement. And so for Thoreau, the importance of silence, of actually withdrawing one's voice from the ongoing practice of of offering tepid consent to the way things are, I, I think that probably, so here we might actually want to join solitude with silence, the importance of extended periods of inarticulacy where one then assures oneself and others that when one does add one's voice once again, there's actually something to say that, that you really, that you really mean it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And to, to just add something to each of those two points, I was first thinking when, when Walid was just speaking, I, I do an exercise, I mean, or it's actually, I have a discussion with my students almost every semester that I teach either environmental virtue ethics or Thoreau or anything like this. And I'll ask them, what is the longest amount of time you've spent alone and in silence? And obviously they want to nitpick about what that means, but I, I tell them alone, you have to be kind of meaningfully separated from other people. So maybe someone's in the distance somewhere. Silence, you've got to, you know, not, not be speaking, but certainly not be communicating. So you can't be texting or taking a selfie for your Instagram feed either. And for most of my students, when they think about this, their honest answer, if you exclude sleep, is some period of time in minutes. The longest amount of time they've ever spent alone and in silence would be measured in minutes. And that's really, that's really tough, I think, in terms of their experience of solitude, in part because, now linking my comment here to, to Scott's point about silence, I've done uh, in my life a lot of solo travel and solo climbing trips. It's one of my passions outside of work. And perhaps I am, um, perhaps I am particularly weak, and there might be people who are better at meditation or prayer or, or forms of discipline like that than I am. But my experience is that it takes two to three days, two to three days of being alone on a solo trip or a solo climb before I really start to inhabit or feel the silence where I'm not narrating things in my own head as I'm doing them. I'm not kind of projecting myself onto the environment. And I'm actually just just being instead of narrating and again, people people who might be better practiced at meditation or things like that might be able to slip into that state in a matter of minutes. But I think for most people, the kind of solitude that's required for them to get a real dose of what you guys were calling a, a deep experience in your introduction, I think it, it, it requires a strong dose of solitude to get that. Or, or habituation, mm-hmm. right? So, which is the point Indeed, that you, yeah. you're making there. But this is where I think the questions of social structure of environment become really important because there are social environments that are better at habituating you to that than mm-hmm. others. And I think another way of saying what I was saying before in the sort of Thoreau-Emerson comparison or the, the congregation isolation or individual comparison is that we we now have an environment that makes habituation to that kind of solitude more or less impossible. Mm-hmm. We're no good at it. We, in some ways, we have no hope of being any good at it unless we try really, really hard to like cultivate the practice of it, which in our social context would be an oddball thing to do. 
Right? You, <laughs> you have to be a deeply strange person, we, you know, according to the lights of our society, to be able to do this. It seems to me, and, and then, and maybe that's why the, the people who do, do do those things or want to talk about those things end up, I don't know, cultivating communities on Instagram or writing, which would be ironic, <laughs> or you yeah. know, or, or writing books like self help books or whatever, because it's so radically countercultural to try to to do anything like this with any seriousness. Right. I mean, but if we take that idea seriously, which I certainly want to, I mean, I, I would absolutely second and third the idea of of solitude as a practice and as something that we get better with through a process of habituation. Um, one of the ways I tend to think about Thoreau is as a kind of idiosyncratic virtue ethicist. And, and virtue ethics is this tradition of ethics that, at least in the West, comes from uh, Aristotle, but it's been influential throughout Western philosophical history. And the idea is instead of focusing on whether or not specific actions are illicit or illicit, right, whether whether lying is right or wrong or something like that, instead of approaching ethics that way, it approaches ethics from the, the side of the agent, the person who acts, and it, it talks about cultivating specific virtues mm. to become a, a, a full human being, virtues like courage and temperance, lots of things that I'm sure you and your listener, listeners would be familiar with, but... This is uh, all sounding pretty familiar, Willie. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. In, in any case, I, I tend to read Thoreau as this kind of odd, idiosyncratic, eccentric, American virtue ethicist. Um, mm. And that in Thoreau, I tend to read things like simplicity and solitude as, as virtues. And, and earlier on in uh, – I forget which one of you mentioned this, but I jotted it down. Earlier on – uh, one of you is speaking about solitude as a practice that can cultivate other virtues, right? By by practicing solitude, we might gain other goods as well. Yeah, I think that's pretty true of lots of virtues. Um, that that certain virtues come in family groups that are self-supporting, so to speak, mm-hmm. or self-reinforcing. If uh, you've just joined us, you're listening to The Minefield. Waleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. The other voice you're hearing there belongs to Brian Traynor, who's a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in California. Barely got that out. Professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount. Sorry, why am I struggling with this? Brian, why is that hard to say? It is. A lot of people trip over that one, Waleed. It's not just yourself. What is it? When I can't say something, I like to try to figure out what the precise hurdle is. Loyola Marymount. There are lots and lots of of different Loyola institutions in the world because of uh, the Jesuits. And my university is is historically associated with both the Jesuits and uh, the Marymount sisters. And so putting those two together just isn't something you come across very often. Oh, maybe, maybe they're not meant to be together, Brian. I don't know. Maybe I've stumbled across some kind of important truth here. Anyway, Brian is Professor of Philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in California. Boom! All right. Where were we? <laughs> I have a question. I have a question to, to both of you. I don't want to sort of shoehorn us back into the schema that I tried to introduce at the beginning in terms of the before of solitude, the end of solitude, mm. and the during of solitude. But it does strike me – I mean, Brian, you've sort of touched on it. But I'm, I, I'm actually really curious, Waleed, because I, I think you've got a lot to say about this, but I'm not entirely sure what it is that you would say about it. Okay. When is – let me just put it to you this way, Waleed, and then Brian, if you can please chime in. Yeah. 
when is solitude not solitude? So when are you alone, but not really alone? I mean, we, we talked the other week about when fasting is not really fasting. Mm. Mm. When, when, is, when is solitude practiced in such a way that it's self-defeating, that the good that you are that you are wanting to get from it or that you're wanting to discover through it is deactivated or disabled by the way that you're practicing it. Your radar's a bit off here, Scott, because I'm not sure I do have a lot to say about it that isn't isn't derivative uh, of what we've already discussed. So I think this is where your observation of purpose becomes really important. So if what you're practicing is isolation without purpose, then I don't think we're talking about the solitude that's relevant here. What and about what, too much purpose though, Waleed? What about, what if, what if the end of this is too much in sight and I'm therefore incapable of fully inhabiting this moment and discovering something that maybe I wasn't expecting as the result of it. So I don't know it, what that means. It can be, well, well it, it can either be non-teleological. In other words, I'm just alone for the hell of it. Mm. Or it's almost, you can be too teleological where this damn experience coming to an end and what I, the, the predetermined goal that I want to get from it being too much in view that the that the surprise of, of, of immediacy, that the surprise of something emerging in my life or through my reading or, or through meditation or through walks, I, I almost, I discount the possibility of being surprised by a new telos, by a telos I didn't imagine in advance. Does that make things easier? Yeah, so you're not open to anything. Is that what yeah. you mean? Yeah, not open to surprise. Yeah, so or to moral encounter. This sounds like another way, though, of saying there are just good purposes and bad purposes. <laughs> am I am I wrong about that? Like, there are some that are not well suited to this, and there are others that that are. And perhaps what we're trying to find then, or, or perhaps what the conversation becomes is, what, what's the kind of purpose that is appropriate, uh, the appropriate end of of solitude? And I would say it the the ideal purpose is one that can never be fully realized, but is nonetheless important so that it's a, it's a perpetual journey. It's a, it's like, it's like a, um, a constant quest, um, that you can only get better at, but is never ultimately finished. Whatever fits that criteria, I think might work. Does that help you, Scott, or have I disappointed you? No, you've not disappointed me. I, I'm, I'm going to press you further. Brian, you've got something to say. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think it's tough. I, I wonder if I, I, I'm largely convinced by what Walid just said. I think that that um, that the question of a of what we might call a virtuous purpose overlaps lots of our different actions, and solitude isn't perhaps unique amongst those, right? So, presumably, all of our actions or most actions can be motivated by either good or bad purposes, as you said at the beginning. You know, one of the things I was thinking earlier, although I'm not really satisfied with this formulation, so I'd have to think through it a little more carefully with you guys. I was thinking about uh, the retreat of solitude, and I was asking myself the question, is, is there a difference between uh, entering into solitude 
in order in order to get away from others as one possibility or in order to get to yourself or to get to mm. nature or god or some other some other aim that you're you're doing here I remember when I was younger, and uh, like many Australians, I spent a lot of time uh, traveling overseas in my 20s. And uh, you, you run into these people, you know, in different dodgy youth hostels around the world um, who have been on the road traveling for a year or nine months or 18 months or something like that. And I, I came to realize over my time traveling that some people were traveling because they were searching for something. They were going to something. And other people were traveling because they were running away from something. And I think solitude could work the same way, right? The people who pursue solitude because they're running away from society, that's going to be a different motivation than the people who pursue solitude because they're trying to gain some good. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, that, that actually brings us back to the point of Mr. Ramsey from To the Lighthouse, that you know, these, dreams, these dreams of solitude as if one is throwing off the shackles of what's really holding me back. Whereas it seems to me that one of the indispensable purposes of solitude should be, unless one is an uncommonly pure individual, it one should be sort of beginning gradually, painstakingly to throw off the shackles of self-deception. I mean, I, I would hope that one of the things that solitude does is gives us a better awareness of oneself, of the truth about oneself. But I, I guess I, I also, you know, I mean, uh, notions of telos, of, of the goal of something, are really important to me. But I, I guess I'm also really, you know, this is in the mode of self-confession. I'm also really worried. I'm, I'm frightened about predetermining what it is, what particular good, what particular goal that I want before one has even undergone the process. And I, I, I guess the best analogy that I can find is, you know, I might have read that Tolstoy is a great moral novelist. And I might have read a couple quotes, for instance, from Anna Karenina. And so I set about half reading, half skimming Anna Karenina in order to find the points that I already believed that I was looking for, partly so that I can say to other people, hey, guess what I did over the last three months? And <laughs> partly so that I can, you know, drop appropriate quotes of Anna Karenina in intelligent conversation. <laughs> but, but what I haven't done is fully give myself to the chastening process of really reading that novel and allowing myself to be morally encountered by the, it seems to me, the extraordinary chastening work that that novel does do. So I, I, it seems to me that solitude is also something like that. You know, that there's solitude and then there's solitude. There's solitude because I know what I want to get out of this. And then there's solitude, which knows that I need to have a point to this, that I need to re-enter relationships and family and society as a richer person. But then there's also, there's also the need to let myself be surprised by what I didn't know I needed in the first place. But doesn't doesn't the the third of the three options you just laid out serve the second, right? So the reason we can return the reason we can return to society richer and and refreshed from solitude is precisely because in in the experience of solitude we've been willing to to let go and to open ourselves up to the experience of what the world has to show us or what we discover about ourselves. You know, insofar as we're too structured or purposeful in our solitude, 
we, then we never really get away from ourselves. We may, we may maybe never get away from what society was telling us society supposed to, I'm sorry, solitude is supposed to be about. Part of, part of solitude, as you said, has got to be this aspect of letting go. If we went back to our friend Thoreau, you know, a big part of his daily practice were these walks of four or five or six hours that he referred to as sauntering. Mm. And um, he described sauntering as a, as a process of letting go, where he let nature direct him where he was. So he, he would leave his house to go for one of these long walks without any real particular idea about where he was going to go or what he was going to do. And he'd sort of let discovery lead him along for four or five hours each day. Um, again, that's perhaps more than, than most people uh, maybe have a stomach for, and there are going to be temperamental differences. But I, I think there's something to what you're saying, Scott, about leaving yourself op- open to surprise mm. and and what's revealed to you. And that if we went if we went into solitude with a very kind of structured plan about what's going to happen each hour e- each day, we'd lose a lot of the good that's there. Which also places a nice big question mark against, say, performances of solitude or taking selfies along the way. Hashtag. Yeah sauntering or <laughs> and now it's going to go it's going to go viral right now oh dear imagine if the minefield unleashed hashtag sauntering that was our contribution um well we're out of time so we're going to have to leave it on that note and hope that that's what resonates for at least the next week until the, the next show comes along brian thank you so much um i feel thank like you so much it was an incredibly me. rich conversation we could have got gone on a lot longer which is always a good sign um brian trainer is professor of philosophy and charles s casasa chair of social values at where scott Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles. (laughs) Excellent. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done for this week. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.